floods in North Queensland, freak cold snaps in Chicago, summers that seem to break heat records year after year, what is going on? If, as nearly all climate scientists say, our planet is slowly warming, what does the future hold? How do you deal with that psychologically or even spiritually? And apart from bracing ourselves for the inevitable, is there anything practical we can do about it? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. So it's absolutely fantastic to have with us Claudia Houston, who wrote a great article for us in the March edition of Signs of the Times magazine called Perfect Storm, like looking at global warming, looking at CO2 emissions, rising sea levels, the sort of thing that a lot of people are concerned about. Thanks very much for joining us on Signs of the Times Radio, Claudia. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. That's excellent. So where are you speaking to us from, Claudia? Uh, so at the moment, I'm speaking from Brisbane, currently sitting in my classroom, actually, after a long day teaching. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're a high school English teacher, is that right? Yeah, high school English and religious studies, yeah, is what I teach. Okay, oh, that's, that's fantastic. So t- tell us about young people these days. I mean, you, you're on the front line of every day, and what's, what, what, what are young people these days up to? What are, what are they like? What, what are their passions? What, what do you love about you know, being with them? I think um, young people, you know, they're much the same as we always have been. People, um, when they're teenagers, are in this wonderful um, state where there's so much potential but people are, um, you know, so confused in some ways working out who they are and they're changing brains and bodies and um, who they're going to be in the future. And so that really hasn't changed. What has changed, I think, over the last 10 years is just the connectedness of young people, like the sheer amount of time that they spend on the internet um, exposed to different media sources, um, like a lot of them are really quite well informed. Um, mm. When I think back to perhaps myself in high school, they know what's going on a lot of the time. Okay, no, that's that's really interesting, and and I guess another thing that um, that they're faced by is, I guess, global warming. And I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, growing up in New Zealand, it was a, a big deal there in terms of nuclear weapons, and you know, we were worried that we might be destroyed you know, by a nuclear war. I mean, I guess that still is an actual possibility, but it seems every generation has its sort of looming catastrophe. And, and you know, for me, it might have been nuclear weapons, but for these kids, I imagine that must they must be very sort of aware of, of global warming and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you notice sometimes in some of the jokes that they make that there's a bit of a fatalistic attitude towards it in terms of they when they think about it, they understand... They understand that it's a problem and they understand how bad the effects are going to be, but they don't feel that it's within their grasp to do anything about it. But they're actually the ones whose futures are going to be impacted by it. And so, um, yeah, they when you hear them joking about it, it's really quite sad because it's this big problem that they don't feel that they can do much about. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sad to us. I, I guess sometimes the best way to deal with something difficult is with some dark humour, you know, to sort of you know, figure out some way to, to get your head around it to um, not have it get you down too much. Yeah, definitely. A bit of an Australian thing there too, some dark humour thrown in there. But yeah, it's definitely something that comes through in the conversation when you start talking about climate change. 
Wow. No, that's really interesting. Now, you started your, your article, which is in the, the March edition of Signs of the Times, with, with an interesting account of how you went for your first dive at 10 years old. So are you talking about scuba diving or, or um, are you talking about snorkeling? Yeah, scuba diving, legitimate scuba diving, just one of those one-off trips that you can do when you go to the Great Barrier Reef, like it's, uh, you know, $100 for your first time dive experience and they strap you into everything basically tell you everything that you need to know to not die straight away and go for a swim holding the instructor's hand. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was my first time when I was 10, which is a little while ago now. But it sticks out so clearly because it's such a unique experience because you definitely don't go underwater and breathe all the time. So the first time you do it just blows your mind. Wow, far out. So what, what do you remember seeing at, at that point? And, and where exactly were you uh, along the coast? Yeah, so I was off off a particular point in Cairns, I don't remember the exact reef, but, you know, an hour, an hour and a half out to sea, something mm. like that. And at the time, the coral, the colours of the coral were um, really vibrant. That's the first thing that you notice. So lots of pinks and oranges, reds, those sorts of colours. And the closer you get to them, the brighter they become. Um, and lots and lots of sea life. So you notice that um, all of the different species of fish all have a different personality and the way that they interact with each other is different. So some of them are really aggressive, others are sort of the cleaners who go around and help all the other fish. Um, you saw turtles, turtles just like sitting like cats, like they were on a sofa um, on the coral and different big schools of fish. There's just more life than like you look at a forest and there's life there. But when you look at a reef, the life is so dense and so interconnected. It's very unique. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I actually spent four years living in in the Cairns region and I did get out snorkeling out to Green Island and, you know, a, a couple of locations out there. It, it is pretty special. And I also remember growing up in the um, Papua New Guinea as well, some incredible reefs out there in the Pacific Islands. It's, so is that something that you've continued doing like through the through the years since you were 10? Yeah, so I then went on and earned my dive license when I was 18. And I've dived different locations around the Great Barrier Reef since then, also a bit in New South Wales and Thailand. So mostly within Australia and then in Thailand. But it's funny when you go overseas and you talk to people and you say, oh, I've only ever dived on the Great Barrier Reef. And you only feel like you've dived in Australia. But to them, it's the Great Barrier Reef. Like it's the holy grail of diving. <laughs> wow. And do you find that to be the case? I mean, do you find everything else pales into insignificance? Or are there some pretty special reefs out there elsewhere in the world? Uh Look, there are lots of special reefs that I plan to go and have a look at at some stage, but in terms of size and diversity, like our reef takes the cake, like it's a shame I've noticed within recent history that it isn't what it was. You definitely start to see the coral bleaching that they talk about, like it's a very real thing. Mm. But the reef is still quite special for the bleaching that's occurred. Yeah. Oh, so you have actually seen that firsthand, actually, you, you've, and the Great Barrier Reef or elsewhere, you've seen like places that were once very colourful actually become like quite quite bleached by the, I guess, the you know ocean heating up and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's like a white boniness. Well, it literally looks like bones yeah. um, that starts on the top of the coral and gradually takes it over. And it used to be that you didn't see it and then you would see it on the fringes of the coral. But within the last two to three years, like a lot of reefs are just this white bony coral that you wouldn't have seen previously and you have to go quite far out um, into the ocean into quite remote locations to find parts that aren't like that anymore. Wow so I guess in, in the shallower 
sections is where you're more like, you know, closer to land is where you're more likely to get what larger variations of, of water temperature is. Is that what's behind? Is that why you need to go further out to find sort of more stable temperatures and, and healthier corals? Yeah, that's what I suspect. It's also um, deep sea. So the deeper the sea, um, the better the coral is likely to be. So coral formations that are sitting within 14 metres of the top is, so that's a basic level of scuba diving 14 metres from the top. A lot of that's been affected, but if you're able to go into submerged vehicles and have a look deeper down, then that seems to be better. So, Claudia, I mean, I understand you're you're not a science teacher. Um, you're, you're not a, a science researcher or anything like that. You're, you're an English and religion teacher, as you as you said. But you have done a little bit of research in preparing this article on global warming for us at, at Science of the Times. So, I guess you're in a good position to explain to us in in sort of lay terms what what are the basics of of how this mechanism works, where people say, "Hey, we have a problem with global warming, and it's." going to cause us all sorts of hassles what what's actually going on yeah so essentially what's going on so the extra carbon dioxide molecules that we put into the atmosphere they sit up in the atmosphere and they prevent heat from escaping the atmosphere as they would have done and they also trap heat from the sun so right um, and and that's what they call the greenhouse effect yeah that's the greenhouse. Yeah, effect. it's funny they don't really use that language anymore. I remember, like you know, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, they used the word greenhouse effect quite a lot and greenhouse gases, and they don't use it so much anymore. But that's that's still a thing. Okay. The thing that's perhaps um, more worrying is actually rise in ocean temperature. So not rise in surface temperature, but actually ocean temperature. That's risen faster than atmospheric temperature, and that actually has um, more immediate effects as well. Um, that happens in a similar way because CO two can sit in water as well. Yeah, so it warmer faster. Okay. And I mean, my understanding is that when it's not simply a matter of oceans being warmer and perhaps killing some corals, but when those oceans are warmer, it actually changes the the sort of shape and direction of those like massive ocean currents. And that results in like very different weather patterns. And is is that your understanding? Yeah, it seems that it's quite unknown territory because large-scale changes have happened in the past. When you think about all those areas of geology that we know of, but looking into the future, this sort of rapid change, the climactic effects that it could have in terms of um, El Nino's, La Nina's, things like that is somewhat unknown. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and then we have actual sea level rises, don't we? I mean, they. I mean, what sort of sort of rises are we looking at? What sort of measurements are, are we predicting? Yeah, about? so it's interesting. Um, NASA actually keeps great statistics that are easily available to the public about this. And the sea has risen 3.2 millimetres per year since 1919. Yeah, so um, that adds up to um, about 320 millimetres over the past 100 years, sea levels have risen. And that's accelerating at the moment because of melting ice caps, etc. Okay, so what? So three hundred and twenty millimeters—that's what thirty-two centimeters. So you're looking at about a foot in the in in the old oh. money, like a of of a school kid's ruler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, that which may not sound like a lot, but if mm. you go down to your local beach and you hold a ruler up, you'll be surprised by the amount of land that would be covered if the water rose to the top of that ruler. So these things don't sound like a lot, but they actually accumulate to be quite catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously we have tidal differences that, you know, can be much bigger than that. But I guess if, yeah. if you had your biggest king tide and then went up uh, another, you know, 32 centimetres on top of that, then, yeah, that, that could 
cause problems. Well, I guess it does cause problems, doesn't it? You, you mentioned Bangladesh, for example. I mean, they that they have like floods pretty much every year. Yeah, they do. They're a very low-lying country, surrounded by water and rivers, and so they've had large numbers of people displaced in the last twenty years as climate change has become a factor. As um, particularly as rivers have risen. It was half a million Bangladeshi people, and this was in 1995, actually. So this yeah. is ages ago. Became homeless because of a river rising. Wow, far out. Yeah. So who? So apart from Bangladesh, who is already being impacted by this, and and who do you think is most likely to be impacted in in the future? Yeah. So it's impacting quite a lot of people. So if we look overseas. A lot of other low-lying countries, particularly South Pacific Island nations, are being faced by this. So, for example, the country of Kiribati, um, Kiribati mm-hmm. has uh, asked the Australian Parliament to take its concerns to a larger global audience because they said we just don't have the sway as a country because we're so little for people to listen to us. Yet what they're actually experiencing is that um, because their land is so low-lying that it's actually gradually being swallowed up. So that's a future concern for them. But the present concern is actually that all of the land that is dedicated to agriculture is experiencing salification, which is where the salt table rises. And so it becomes yeah. unusable. Yeah. So overseas, are people definitely starting to suffer for this. If we look at home, um, then it's arguable that the droughts that Australia keeps experiencing uh, climate change cause as well. So you, you mentioned, Claudia, that it's um, it's not just people in other countries. It is people in Australia, like, say, drought and, and floods and, and extreme weather events. Um, it's interesting, you know, recently we had this, um, uh, like in the Northern Hemisphere in the, in the US, places like Chicago had this incredible cold snap, you know, and, and people died. And, um, and I remember President Trump saying, oh, so much for global warming, you know, this is freezing. I mean, what? And, and a lot of people say things like that, but I get the feeling he might be missing the point somehow. Yeah, so um, there are anomaly events that still occur around that still occur around the baseline temperature rise, but the baseline temperature rise still occurs regardless of the big freezes that occur. I do remember last year Tony Abbott said something to the effect of if global warming happens, then fewer people will die from hypothermia. You could take that angle if you wanted, but there are a few more concerns on top of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it was my understanding that if we do have, like, global warming doesn't just mean that, you know, temperatures are going to be hotter. I mean, you know, we, we have had heat waves and things like that that are quite unexpected. But I guess it's my understanding that it also means more extreme weather events. And that means extreme hot, but as well, it means extreme cold. As well, it means hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons and, um, you know, you know things like that, flooding. So, in fact, a, a very particularly nasty cold snap actually could be a symptom of global warming or or, or yeah. am I reading too much into it? Mm. Yeah, abs- no, absolutely. Freak weather events are exactly what climate scientists have predicted as part of the general tw- trend of climate change and tropical cyclones, which I live in Queensland, we are the ones who experience tropical cyclones mm. in Australia, are becoming larger and more frequent as well because of the changes in atmospheric temperature and um, the different chemistry that's floating up in the air there. Yeah, wow. Okay, and, and I guess then there's all sorts of other things like, you know, how far south are the cane toads going to march if it keeps, you know, getting more warmer and more tropical, you know, up north or, um, you know, in malaria, you know, all, all sorts of things. You, you just don't know. How, how do you sort of relate to this 
as a person of faith, I mean, you, you said you're, you're a religion teacher and you're at a, a Christian school, I understand. Um, so as a person of faith, like looking at these sorts of issues, global warming, you know, the impacts that it's having on people, do you have a, a like a religious or a biblical or spiritual understanding of, of how to make sense of all this? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, sometimes Christians can be climate change deniers, but I don't actually think there's any need for us to be that way because mm. the uh, consequences of climate change really only confirm the Christian narrative in terms of looking towards a future that's going to be um, disaster-prone and a future that's going to become unlivable for humans. There was a really interesting quote from Missy Higgins recently when she said that um, she was, she'd been researching about climate change and as she realised the truth of it, which is that we're unlikely to solve it, she looked at her newborn son and just wept as she realised what his future was likely to be. Yeah. This is, um, so it's not just Christians who are thinking that climate change is going to cause this. So as a Christian, um, I definitely see it as pointing to um, the type of world that Jesus said was going to be before he came. Somewhere that's to live. But then the other way of coping with that, so um, I think it's really important for Christians that we don't use the, oh, well, it's all going south anyway. Claudia, so when you talk about Jesus' words about the last days, like he's talking about, he actually talked about natural disasters, didn't he? Said, hey, look, there's going to come a time when these sorts of, you know, things like man-made and natural disasters will increase. And that's sort of the beginning of of the signs that the world is, is coming to an end. So that, that's what you're talking about there, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Um, his words were, if I didn't come, then no one would survive wow. because of natural and human-made things. So pretty clear prediction there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but but sorry, I interrupted you. You were, you were sort of going on to a, a, another point. Yeah, so I think it's really important. Sometimes people can use this idea that, oh, well, it's all going south anyway as an excuse not to do anything. Hmm be ignorant about climate change but when you look at Jesus other teachings like that's clearly not what we're called to do we're called to actually help the people who are affected by these issues yeah absolutely hmm. yeah who, who is my neighbor and all that stuff I mean yeah you, you're supposed to be there and I think Jesus also said I mean whatever you do for the the least of these you know people who are suffering um, it's as if you you did it for me and obviously for a Christian that's a really powerful thing you know Jesus is no longer walking around in this earth. So, you know, well, how can I do something, you know, for, for Jesus? Well, it's difficult to do something phys- for him physically, but what he's saying is, well, if you help someone who's struggling, you know, who's going through a hard time, even if that's someone who's being affected by global warming, then that's, you know, you're actually living out your faith by doing that. Yeah, exactly that. Like there's a very um, clear command that um, Jesus says, look out for people and it's as those um, you're looking up out for me so I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink well one of the effects of climate change is literally that people are going to find it more difficult to access fresh drinking water yeah <laughs> so like there's a very clear mandate there are things that we can do in the meantime and also some of the other things so in the book of revelation God actually says that as part of his part of his summing up of events on earth that people who destroyed the earth are going to have um, a hard time with it. yeah um, they'll, they'll be destroyed themselves yeah he, yeah, yeah wow. I will destroy those who destroyed the earth. So mm. it's not as though God doesn't care about the environment itself either. So I think it's really important, even though we have a clear understanding of where all this is headed, that we still do everything in our power to try and prevent it happening and to help those people whom it affects. Yeah, yeah. And I guess like from the very beginning, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were given a pretty clear 
you know, job, weren't they? Pretty clear responsibility to, to look after the land that was there. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's still our job as human beings to look after the planet we, we've been we've been given. What what are some things that, that we can do as individuals to, to make a positive difference to possibly slow or, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could reverse um, global warming? Yeah, so there are still plenty of things that we can do in the meantime. So if... If helping others who are dealing with the effects of climate change is what you're looking at, then there are all sorts of charities that um, you can go through to send your money to people who are being affected by losing their land, um, by climate disasters, things like that. So that's definitely an option. In terms of reducing a personal contribution to the greenhouse effect or our um, carbon footprint, as we call it these days, yeah. there are we can do so a big one that surprises people is actually um clothing so the clothing industry is actually now the second biggest polluter behind fossil fuels so every item of clothing that you purchase has a huge has consumed a huge amount of water and fossil fuel in the way to being produced and it's not to say that we shouldn't wear clothes but to reconsider reconsider where we get those clothes from um and the amount and the quality that we need so definitely purchasing less new purchasing less new clothing is something that we can do. I'm um, reconsidering our use of transport. We're very car dependent here in Australia. Sometimes, you know, taking public transport. I live in Brisbane. Um, yeah. We're not as much of a city as um, Sydney or Melbourne, perhaps. So sometimes taking the train train is seen as the second class option, but actually it's the climate friendly option. Mm. Yeah. So reconsidering our transport use. Another one is checking um, investments to see where they are. So things like your superannuation, your shares checking that they're in climate-friendly industries. So there are options now through most super providers that you can check that you want to make sure that your investments, that your money is actually going um, towards sustainable industries, not ones that are contributing to this um, problem. So there are actually lots of steps that we can take to do that. Yeah, yeah. That, those those are some really good, really good practical points that you're making there, Claudia. And I guess the other thing is to look at your diet. I mean, I, I believe that the like the animal food, like the meat industry, basically, um, and the grazing of you know beef cattle and things like that, is actually also one of the you know top three major contributors to to you know carbon in, in the atmosphere. Is that your understanding too, or is this just my vegetarianism talking? <laughs> no, it's absolutely the case. I mean, out of methane that cattle produce is absolutely enormous through the course of their lifetime. So um, simply by choosing, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become a vegetarian, but by cutting out uh, some animal products from your diet or just eating less of them, you can be making a huge positive impact. Yeah, no, that's great. Hey, thanks so much, Claudia. Really appreciate your, your insights and your experience here. Thanks for writing the article for us and thanks for being a part of Signs of the Times Radio today. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for the chat. It was great to hear thoughts about it too. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 